Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. Thank you for tuning in this week. Man, it's been a fun season so far. We've talked about a lot of different investment strategies. We've talked about uh, business in a sense. We've talked about the startup world. A lot of what I learned at the, the Tony Robbins finance event. Man, it's been uh, it's been fun. Hope you guys have been learning a lot. Head over to thewellstandard.com. That's where we have all of our show notes. There's links, there's downloads, ton of information there. We've updated it as well. So there is a, a sign up for our email list. We're going to be a lot more active there as well as our social media. So make sure you sign up for the email list as well as follow us on social media. Uh, my Instagram is Patrick Donahoe CEO. And uh, then also we have uh, a Well Standard page on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn as well. So follow us there and you guys can get all the, the most recent updates. Uh, so listen, today I wanted to bring on a good friend of mine. His name is Matt Atkinson. And he is someone I've known for a long time. We met just a few years after I moved to Salt Lake City and he was in the, the mortgage space. I had a, a couple of years in the mortgage uh, space before I moved to what I'm doing right now. And you know, Matt is someone that I've crossed paths with over and over. And uh, most recently, our relationship has kind of uh, gone to another level because he is also a member of this Tony Robbins Platinum Partnership that I'm a part of. And we have been able to hang out, talk, and you know, discuss pretty much everything, all topics, personal, professional, investing, business. It's been amazing. And he's a good guy, has a good heart. And what's most amazing is he finds fun and, and a way to be, be humorous in pretty much every, you know, every circumstance. So it's an awesome guy to, to hang around with. But he also has a level of expertise in the residential investment space that I think is very important for you guys to understand. A residential is typically the way in which a real estate investor will first get exposed to real estate. And you know he has been through some ups and downs, and you'll hear about that with some of his stories. But his expertise, it helps you guys to understand if you are getting started in real estate or maybe heavily in real estate right now and have not gone through a, a market correction, some of the points in which he is going to make clear will definitely benefit you. So pay close attention. And like I mentioned in the beginning, go to the show notes, all the links as far as how to follow Matt as well as some of the resources he provides from a consulting and educational standpoint will all be there. So let me give you a brief background on Matt, do his uh, bio before I turn over to the interview. So Matt started his career in real estate 17 years ago as a mortgage professional, and he has been investing for 14 years. He purchased his first investment property in 2004, which is a single family home uh, through a short sale. 
And he actually still owns that rental unit today. Matt credits this the experience going through kind of the ups and downs of 2008 and 2009 with getting him addicted to local real estate investing and now owns over $14 million of rental properties personally. Uh, Matt has accumulated north of 25,000 hours of experience in this space, uh, which is basically seven years around the clock. Uh, and he's personally invested uh, almost $2 million in rehabbing and uh, also an additional $4.5 million on flipping properties since 2008. So Matt, has, you know, his, his focus now is you know, still in mortgage, in investing, but now he's consulting and is teaching what he has really become an expert in. So he teaches range, you know, in the range of uh, rentals, landlording, hard money lending, fixed and flipping assignments, and building uh, wealth as an investor overall. He served as the president of the Utah Valley Real Estate Investors Association for seven years and is a board member of the Salt Lake Real Estate Investors Association for nine years a member of the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals for five years, and is a member of the Utah Association of Mortgage Professionals. And he's been uh, with them for four years. Okay. Matt's an awesome guy. You guys are going to get a kick out of him. He is uh, just a great guy to listen to, very intelligent. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed as much as I did. What's up, everyone? This is Patrick. Okay. I'm here with a good friend. He's been recently a good friend. You've been a contact for a really long time. It's true. But recently, like we've hung out quite a bit. That's true. It's been uh, it's been awesome. Thank you. It's been a highlight of my 2020 so far. Wow, we're only in our second <laughs> month too. So high, we have high hopes for this podcast. Man. That's true. It's true. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, like I mentioned, we've known each other for a long time, right? 2005, maybe five or five six. Or six. Yep. 2005 or six. And you've continued in the mortgage industry right through the financial crisis and saw each other, what, 2012, 2013 at one of Jason Hartman's events. Oh, That's yeah. kind of where we yeah. connected. And yep. I've, you know, I've, I've followed you on Facebook as well. But then we reconnected at some of the Tony Robbins events yep. and you joined uh, the Platinum Partnership. And it's been cool hanging out with you and your, and your wife, Edie, on some of the events. Yeah. And I'm really excited for this interview because you have a perspective that I think is really valuable for the audience because you've seen a different side of investment and you've chosen to specialize in a niche and have become really an expert there. Right. So I'm really excited to hear your perspective on where you're at right now, what you've learned from some of the events we've gone to, some right. of the Tony Robbins events, and then what does your you know future future hold? Awesome. Okay. Yeah, you bet. So let's uh, let's start with some some of these rapid fire questions. I'm ready to get like your perspective of of life and where you come from. I think that's really important. So the first one is pre work. Who was a role model to you? Someone that either inspired you or you looked up to? Yeah. So I think it's really common. A lot of times people say their dad. My dad was a good role model, but I would say in addition to my dad, I looked up to both my parents, and then. Actually, a family friend just passed away th- about three weeks ago that was very influential in me growing up as a child, like 12 to 19 years old. I really, he was very non judgmental, let me be myself. I was kind of a hothead, mouthy high school guy. So I looked up to him a lot. And then as I started working, I did some different development, really looked up to actually. Tom Hopkins. No way. Yeah. Tom Hopkins. Yeah. Love Tom Hopkins. I met him in 2006. Okay. Yeah, so, I, I met Tom a couple times. Uh, really? Man, I think the last time was about two years ago. So. Oh, cool. At the, such a good guy. The real estate guys. Yeah. 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 He's, a, he's such an amazing speaker. Yeah, he is. Okay. Second one. Superhero. 
Uh, what superhero or icon in history do you most resonate with? Han Solo. Really? Yeah, Han Solo. Now, I'm not sure if he's a superhero, but he gets... Well, I think he's a superhero, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but Han Solo, he's rebellious. He, like, takes chances. He always gets the girl. But he's just like, your hothead, like... And he gets killed by his son. That's awful, right? That's but terrible. Han Solo, That's a terrible ending. Han Solo. That's amazing. All right, third, charitable causes. What charitable causes do you support? Yeah, so I like working... Being in mortgage lending since the end of 2001, we started focusing on veterans on a national basis. So I've always kind of had like a like wanting to help veterans, especially ones with just different dis- disabilities. And then I have a couple friends that have come back from the service that have had some like PTSD, emotional challenges. So I kind of have like a a mental di- like wounded warrior kind of thing. And then I've also liked to really give back with people who have like just some mental challenges. To, to give back because I'm very fortunate. I haven't had those challenges. So it's hard for me to be like empathetic, like just cause I don't know what they're going through, of course, yeah. but I've seen people have that happen to them. So I like to give back in that way. That's amazing. Uh, finally legacy. There was one attribute that you could impress upon your kids, grandkids, the world, uh, or this audience. What would it be? Don't take life too serious and enjoy the journey. I think uh, a lot of times uh, we're young, we're, barely 40. We'll say we're 29 still. But you know, there's a lot of things in life that what can you learn from those experiences? And if you can like learn from it to get better and then also not do that mistake again, I think we can just appreciate life a lot more. Yeah, I was out today when we're filming this happens to be when you know they were doing Kobe Bryant's funeral. Michael Jordan spoke, uh his uh, wife spoke as well. And I mean talk about a tenacious guy. At the same time, he really enjoyed the journey. Right. Right. He loved pressure. He loved competition. At the same time, there was a level of, of enjoyment that I think most people miss when yeah. it comes to working hard, uh, driving in a, uh, towards some sort of an achievement, and they miss the beauty of it, the experience of it along the way. Yeah. That's interesting you brought that up. I just finished the book Relentless mm-hmm. on Friday. Have you read that? I haven't. What's, what's so that Relentless about? is written by, I believe, Tim Grover, mm-hmm. and he was Kobe Bryant's trainer. Oh, okay. He wow. was Michael Jordan's trainer, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade. Oh, wow. I learned about, I, I think you'd really like it. It talks about a cleaner who's Kobe, Dwayne Wade, Michael Jordan was considered a cleaner, a closer, which is a lot of other people, and then a cooler. That's everyone else. So he gives these examples. You would love so like it. these different archetypes of yeah, basketball, basketball or sports. Yeah. sports, yeah, but it's in life. And huh. he gives a lot of examples. I learned about the book last month at a real estate investing class I okay. went to. And the speaker talked about it. And I was like, oh, I, I want to read it. And I just barely finished it on Friday. But he gives a lot of examples about Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. It was touching, man. There was like so many, so many people there. But it, sh- it shows you just how much of an impact one person can can make. And yeah. of course, he was in a stage where he had the attention of a massive right, audience. Right. Right. At the same time, you know, he it, one individual touching many. Even Michael Jordan it was you should go and check yeah. out that video. It was really touching. Because Michael Jordan usually is kind of a a-hole, right? Right. On, <laughs> when he's when he speaks, but there was another side of him. It was really it was really cool. And for, you know, just to hear those those very short stories right. just showed you how that type of tenacity can inspire and touch right. people. Especially as jazz fans. We respected Kobe Bryant, but hated when he beat us. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't around. I wasn't a jazz fan then. Oh, you were? I wasn't oh. around. I wasn't around. Oh, can I tell a quick Kobe go Bryant ahead, story? Go for it. 
1997, right after I graduated from high school, a friend of mine got uh, tickets to go to the playoffs game, the Jazz versus the Lakers. Uh-huh. And I was at the, the Jazz Lakers game when Kobe Bryant shot the air balls in the playoffs and missed. And they actually talk about it in the book Relentless. Like that was a pivotal, like you're a rookie, you miss some three pointers and then he like get really good and win. So yeah, I remember Kobe from a long time. That's the thing. It's like, those are the moments where like you could say it was failure, but it was like a huge, probably a huge catalyst for him to do, you know, how many, however many free throw shots until he had it, had, had it down to perfection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very few people seek out those opportunities to, yeah. to face humiliation or face failure at that level. Yeah. And he was chucking three, three pointers like it's going out of style. And then I also watched the last game when he played the Jazz in LA as that tsunami eating sushi with a friend and scored 60 points. That was an amazing experience. But I remember it, they showed some highlights too of just when he was playing that last game and he knew he was retiring after right, the season, right? Right. He, he showed a lot of affection toward coaches, owners. Right. I mean, he's a very, very classy guy. So apparently he learned a lot from his rookie season up until yeah. his last season. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, let's get into investment. I think that awesome. a lot of this is most, what we've been talking about as far as legacy is concerned and purpose will probably come out uh, just based on some of the experiences you and I have had with the platinum partnership, specifically last uh, event we went to, right? Uh, but I want to get into your investing experience. That's the the topic of this season, the theme that we've been revolving around. Because right now, it's just a very interesting time financially with where our country is at. And if you don't understand you know, some of the fundamentals in economics and have the experience of when things shift, right, it can catch you off guard and. Oftentimes, without that type of perspective, we're always looking for things that you may not be aware of that could impact what you're trying to achieve. It can ultimately those things are are what usually catch you off guard. And there's two ways to learn, right? You can either experience it yourself and learn, or you can learn from the experience of others. Right. I'd way rather learn from others. No kidding. Everyone says that, but rarely do we. Sometimes it's like you take you know others' perspectives. You know, it just, it just depends. It depends on what level they're at. So that's right. why I wanted to talk about your experience briefly so that the audience can realize where your expertise really is, what you've gone through over the last sure. you know, 15 years, 16 years yeah. since you've in, been investing in real estate. Yeah, I bought my first property in 2004. Okay. So 16 years. Describe just in a nutshell your investing experience. Sure. So I think a lot of times... When I, you first start, you have no idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I bought my first property in 2004. I bought a couple properties in 2005 that were actually mortgage clients that were able to refinance. They had a notice of default filed or they weren't able to... They had a you know not a good situation. So I ended up buying their houses. And then in 2006, I bought 13 homes. And that's when we met and we were doing a lot of fulfillment for option arms. What an amazing... Five point agent loan, right? <laughs> so that kind of helped me learn. A lot of people would be buying properties purely for the appreciation, mm-hmm. and they didn't have the cash flow or make enough money to offset the mortgage payments. Yeah, the mortgage payment or or the less than interest only. Yeah, mortgage payments that we were so good at <laughs> providing them. So there was a group that did real estate coaching or consulting here in in Utah, and they would pitch opportunities all throughout the United States. 
and we would do mortgages for them all throughout the United States. And I believe you did that also. Mm-hmm. And I just recognized that they were not, they were like normal people, like a postal carrier, a manager at, you know, the Barnes and Noble. We, I did a mortgage once for a kitchen manager at McDonald's, like oh, wow. just different, you know, and, and anything in between. And they were not cash flowing. And then in 2006, other parts of the country hit their peak. Actually, Arizona, Nevada, California, Florida, they hit their peak in 2006. Where in Utah, we were 18 to 24 months behind. So the other investors nationally started buying in Utah because we were still going up. And they would do a lot of new construction. They would flip the lots to other people. And this is like 2007, 2008. Yeah, 2006 and seven. Okay. That you could assign the new construction house to someone else and wow. make like 20, 30,000, very con- common on condo developments. So as I started buying, I started not buying as many properties because I didn't have a lot of extra cash flow. I needed to have some, you know, margin. And then in 2007, when the bank started going goodbye, like I remember someone like you close on a purchase and the next day you think you're going to get your money and, the bank's out of business. So during that time, it made me be a lot more cautious of like money, having some, always having six months of living expenses and savings. Oh yeah. Reserves is super important. And then during the downturn in 2008 to 2011 in Utah, at least like it went down 10 to 15% values a year where other parts of the country were going down in value. And I was not able to get any more regular mortgages with traditional financing, I started buying with seller financing. And I would buy properties from really good people who were just behind on their payments. I bring it current and keep them as rentals. When all this was going down, where everyone was pessimistic about the real estate market, what gave you the confidence to continue doing it? <laughs> How about I was kind of born that way of just doing things that a lot of other people don't do. Huh. It wasn't the cool thing. Like None of my friends are like, Hey, let's go buy this house in the West Side that's totally not an area that we'd want to live, but keep it as a rental or fix and flipping. Because I was not able to get any more loans, not because of my credit worthiness, but because frankly, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would not allow you to get more than four mortgages. That's right. So you, I had 10 already. So I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just kind of stuck. I knew that not everyone should short sell because. There were people that were behind that as long as they were current, they would sell you their house. Yeah. So I learned that from a couple other people that I didn't really understand. I'm like, that's weird. Why can I buy their house from them? But me buying the house from them and it being current and keeping it for five or 10 years is better than them short selling it. So I just kind of like fell into it. And then I was really aggressive that anytime someone was delinquent and I had the money to bring it current and there was some equity or I could at least cash flow, I'd buy as many houses as I could that way. So what are you up to now? A hundred. A hundred. And they're all, you own them all. I own them all. I do some partnership with my dad and my one, so some with my wife. Okay. And then you also do uh, hard money lending. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's also an interesting, an interesting story because you were doing that pre 2008. And I, I recall yes. a lot of people got caught holding yeah. a bag yeah. that yeah. they couldn't find permanent financing to yeah. replace what they had borrowed at really high interest rates. You're totally correct. So my friend, couple friends and I, we would buy income properties from each other even in 2006. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a couple, maybe 150 grand and you're like, oh, I can, we'll just loan each other money. 
because you couldn't lend yourself the money. So we would lend each other money, notes, deeds of trust, 12%. Maybe we'd always charge each other two points, like two and 12, no problem, kind of washes each other out. But what's interesting is during the market correction, I like to call it a correction versus a crash. Yeah. Yeah. Correction. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would still allow you to always refinance off the appraised value as long as you had a note and a deed of trust immediately, which was really interesting. So I was able to still refinance other people. The difference was is in 2007 and 8, when Lehman Brothers went out of business and a bunch of other lenders, you would you could actually get 100% financing on non-owner occupied properties back then. How? Oh. Because that's what the program the would allow. Still there, wow. Yeah, yeah. So as that program discontinued and then the values went down, that's when a lot of investors short sold or sold their houses. So you kept going with hard money, especially during the the downturn. And as yeah. you said, you were kind of maxed out with the number of loans you can have with single, you know, with, with one to four unit yes. buildings. And you continued to use hard money and lend hard money. Yeah. So then we started fixing and flipping homes because we would get the deal flow, but we couldn't get the rentals. Hmm. And we didn't think about partnering with a bunch of people. I'm actually glad I didn't. I could have partnered with 40 different people mm-hmm. and you'd have all these K-1s and everyone's in a different <sighs> financial spot and people get divorced or sick or whatever. But we actually started doing fix and flips. So from 2008 to now, we normally have done about 8 to 10 fix and flips a year. The last couple of years, we haven't done as many because we've been working on improving our current portfolio and selling them. Hmm, interesting. And I'd rather, to be honest with you, I'd rather lend a bunch of money than, than, than own, own the than, property. Yeah, or yeah. rehab a bunch rehab a bunch of houses. But we still are remodeling houses and just to keep a pulse on what construction costs are. And then you look at it differently when you know you buy an asset, you got to make a bunch of improvements and sell it versus just lending the money. So during, during this time, you were very plugged in, from what I assume, to just the investment market in, in general. And have probably seen a lot of success similar to your own, but also failure. Yeah. So what do you attribute to the successful investor and then equally to the unsuccessful investor? Awesome question. So I would say three things that successful investors do is one, they're modeling other people who've already done it. Like they're not trying to go reinvent the wheel. They're like, we'll just follow what other successful people have done and then we can modify it on our own. The second thing is a lot of people who are more successful that I've noticed have been really good about self-development, like just how to get better with systems from assignments to fix and flips to rentals to um, hard money lending. Uh, This weekend, I'm actually going to an apartment syndication class in Dallas because I want to go learn from other people. Yeah. The third thing is they'll cut their losses quickly versus sitting on it and hoping hoping it it for a rebound and hoping it comes back. So during the downturn from 2011 to 2000, sorry, 2008 to 2011, the second year when I was doing fix and flips, I noticed I had to change my prices before the market forced me to, where most people were the opposite. They would keep slashing, keep slashing, keep slashing, but they'd always be two to 3% behind the market. So as I, as I liquidated and, you know, I would say nine out of 10, we win. One one out of 10, we learn, right? <laughs> so as long as we make those modifications on price adjustments quickly, we were able to make a, a decent profit on f- at least fix and flips. So you were, you had a rule of thumb as far as when you got out? 
yeah, on fix and flips, like our objective is to go in, remodel it in a timely fashion, but not like that I'm doing the work myself or coordinating that. Ideally, you, you'd buy a property, remodel it and have it sold within six months. And if you didn't, then you like would, when, when was like the breaking point? Was it time? No, both. We would just take, we would lower the price to take the loss. Got it. I didn't want to keep accidental flips. I don't want to keep as rentals because how you remodel them for a rental is not the same way as you do well, as a flip. Purchase. Yep. Okay. So talk about failure. What, yeah, do, you, what failure. do you commonly see as like the <laughs> attribute? There's probably a lot more attributes it, of arrogance. failure. Arrogance. They, arrogance. They think uh, newer investors think, and, and I was really arrogant too, depending on who you're talking to, so am, but <laughs> they think like they are untouchable. Yeah. I think that especially the last seven years, everyone has made money in investing just because the market has gone up. So like, you could be smart because you bought something, but not smart because you just bought something and you're like, oh my gosh, I made money. So number one is arrogance. Number two is they do not studying. Like they are not starting the trends. They're not keeping uh, conscientious of like national news. They're also not like they're doing it their own way where it's easy. You just mimic someone else who's more successful and you run with that, right? The third thing is they're unfocused. So I think uh, as real estate investors, I learned this from a guy named Pete Fortunato. He says, the first 10 years in real estate investing, you're considered a starter. You're all over the place. You Everything squirrely is what you want to do. So fix and flips, buy and holds, assignments, apartment, land development, apartment lending, whatever, right? But in years 11 through 30, as a real estate investor, you care about two ways of cash flow. Cash flow from notes, so hard money lending, mm-hmm. or cash flow from rentals. Single families, multifamily, commercial storage, et cetera. Now, here's what where I think it's really amazing that correlates with Tony Robbins with what we learned. On years 31 through 40. So if you think about it, if you've been investing in real estate for 30 years, you've gone through some cycles and you you have you should be a lot smarter with what you're doing. But he says you have two concerns. Number one is you want to pay the least amount of tax as possible. Tax efficiency. Yep. And then the second thing is you don't want to lose your principal. So that shifted me in 2016, my investing strategy, because I was like, oh, it's not all about how many doors I have and other things like that. It's like, I want to be a lot more tax efficient with controlling or owning real estate. So I think in the beginning, it's like, that's when that's when you want the most bang for your buck. That's sure. when you want the most upside. Yep. And it's the whole rocket, you know, rocket ship, tons of fuel expended on takeoff. But then once you get into the atmosphere, right, then much less fuel that propels you forward because you right. already have that momentum. Yeah. So it's similar. So I, I would say maybe to, in a nutshell with, with other investments too, that you can correlate this principle is in the end, when you've built up a mass, you're looking more for, you know, principle preservation, right? Looking more for the highest amount of return for the least amount of risk. Right. Yeah, I agree. Interesting. All right. Let's get into the some of the Tony Robbins, some of the Tony Robbins stuff. So he's used this term winter is is coming for several year now uh, years now. Yeah. Okay, he talks about life being different seasons, yep. right? You have you have spring when things are blooming, you have summer, but then you have fall which is harvest, and then after harvest comes winter. Right. There's a lot of people reaping right now. A lot of people, you know, making a lot of money. There's capital flows that are still pretty uh, abundant. What does that statement mean 
to you? Because you've experienced multiple seasons. Right. When he says that, like what, you know, what goes through your mind? Yeah. So I think of the correction from 2008 to 2011. Sounds crazy. That was like 12 years ago. Yeah. 12 to, yeah. Nine years ago. I remember talking to someone that I actually ended up buying his house a couple of years later at one of his houses. But I'm like, man, I can't afford a steak. And he's like, or going out to eat. He's like, dude, just go and get chicken. I was like, okay. But it's all a mindset, right? Yeah. It's just a mindset with it. So winter is coming. So I would say in real estate investing, and then I'll pick the overall market. In Utah, we've had a run. We hit our bottom in 2011. So we've been going up for nine years straight. That's crazy. Uh, it's on average been, been about 10% appreciation a year, which is not sustainable. People, it's not affordable for people. Now, with that being said, there's three things Utah has that are different than everywhere else. Number one is the LDS religion. Like, Regardless if you like it or not, it's super family-oriented and people feel really safe here. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a really great place to live. Mm-hmm. The number two is it, Utah is very pro-business and there's a lot of smart entrepreneurial people here. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people coming too. Yeah, a lot of people coming here, right? And then the third thing is is the tech, the Silicon Slopes. Yeah, And it's interesting how many people are coming here and are going to tech and it is influencing our culture in a good way, I think. But it's also making it a little less affordable for a lot of other people that are not choosing to develop those skills. So with winter beat coming, there's a lot of newer real estate investors who've been investing only five years. And they have no idea what it's like to have to make... So hard money lending, there's so many people who are lending. They've reduced their rates, their fees. They don't require interest. Like When you have wow. a... $1 million out on a hard money loan on multiple loans. Let's just say you had three loans and you have a million out and you got to write a check for $10,000 a month. You're going to get more motivated to, to make your payment. So where other parts of the country, you're making that check every single month. So I think that I'm really excited for the market to soften when it does. So I'm going to kill it and buy a bunch of properties. At the last three falls to winter to spring, I thought we would hit our peak. And I've been wrong the last three years. Here's why I'm glad I'm wrong. As I've bought in the fall though, I've made more profit in the spring. So I'm going to go into each season as in we're going to stabilize and then have a little shift down because then it'll always keep me honest versus always banking on the spring's a good time. Because from 2008 to 2011, what you bought in the fall and what you listed in the spring was the spring was literally worth five to ten percent less than what it was in the fall, even though the time of the year. Well, it's one of those I look at winter because he always says winter is where all of the opportunities are. Right. Right. Where everyone is the the most pessimistic and the uns usually the unsuccessful investor is the one who has his emotions governing deci- you know, his decisions. Right. Whereas a seasoned investor, you know, understands the role of emotion, but also the role of lo- of logic, and right. they have preset assumptions as far as what they should do given the environment. So I look at winter coming; it's it's a matter of season, the timing of it. You just don't you just don't know, right? Okay? It could be, you know, there could be a downturn starting after the election, right? Or, Depending or, now. or right now, right. or who really knows? At the same time, it's doesn't mean that you should sit on the sidelines, right? right? It means that you need to be cautious, understand numbers, understand what those benchmarks are, because there are always going to be opportunities. At the same time, it's knowing that winter is coming, 
it's recognizing that, wow, having some liquidity, having some reserves is going to prepare you not just to weather the storm, but thrive during that storm. Yeah, I agree. Having the reserves, tons of people are like, hey, how do we buy money? How do we buy real estate with no money? Really, the question is, how do you, what can you do to earn more money so then you can buy more real estate (laughs) to leverage your money? Right. So I used to teach classes how to buy real estate with no money. But I got to be honest, it's way more fun to buy it with money because you're a spender, saver, investor, right? Like there's a transition of the three. And we learned this from mortgages a long time ago and from other people. But literally, there's a mental and psychological transition. You can be a spender all day long and then you get a chunk of money. And if you don't know how to save it, it's going to go regardless of what your income brackets are. And we've met different people like that throughout our lives. Mm -hmm. And then there is, you can transition, but you there's a lifestyle change to go from a spender to a saver. And you literally, it probably takes a couple of years and you need to have money sitting in your bank account. And you have to be disciplined saying, I have $5,000 or $50,000 or $500,000 that I can't touch. And then as you have that self-discipline, then you can invest. And that's what's, you know, what we learned last week, which is you know, something I've instituted and, and often do a little bit too much of because of the experience of 2008, 2009, which is what is the, the proper reserves? What amount of money is right to have in a security or certainty bucket, right? right. Because if you have all of your money there, right, there's not going to be much, much interest or much gain. Most of the game is gonna, uh, gain is going to come from your earnings, right. right? Not from your investments. So it's where do you draw the line between enough and too much uh, re- reserves? And that's all an individual conversation. Right. Yet when you're asking the question of, I don't have any money, how do I buy real estate with no money down? That's the wrong That's the yeah, wrong question. Yeah. The question is, what can I do to earn money so I have money so that I can prepare to own real estate? And it's not hypocritical because you had mentioned when you started to run out of whether it's mortgages available to you right. based on lending guidelines, right? Or even your own cash, then it's, okay, I've done that. I have my reserves. How can I leverage other people? That's There's kind of tiers as far right. as how you involve others in your investing. Yeah. Something I just shared, if, if you reminded me of, if you have six months of living expenses always in checking or savings or uh, whatever is a liquid account, I think you're going to be in a really good spot. So, and then if you take it a step further, if you're self-employed and if you actually know your operating expenses as a business, if you think about it, if you have six months of living expenses and savings and six months of operating expenses in your business account, you have tons of control because you actually know where your numbers are. And then I think after that, you invest as aggressively as you'd like to, however you feel is appropriate. How often do you assess your scorecard, where your cash flow is, where your finances are? Is that something you do monthly? Yeah. So my wife and I go over our, I'll call it our spending plan every single month. We review it annually based on what our previous years experiences, experiences, budgets on books for all business entities, including flips, rentals, everything else. I review those really quarterly and I'll normally use a trailing six month history. Interesting. Cause I think three months is too short. Yeah. Six months is good. You look at a year, but like I just met with the CFO of the mortgage company I work at today to do forecasting for this year. Mm-hmm. And based on like what we discussed and what we've done, we're like, yeah, we're in a good spot that we can make modifications and change things. Okay. A few more, a few more questions. You bet. 
first off, let's go, let's finish off the whole, the whole core four, right? So, so one of the things that, that Tony teaches is when it comes to any type of investment opportunity, there's minimum four things to have, right? right. Or at least have an awareness of number one, it's making an investment where you're not going to lose money. Having an asymmetric risk reward, meaning you have little money in the deal, but massive upside. Yep. And then tax efficiency, tax efficiency being when the first two are in place, it's, you know, are you going to get taxed at the highest rates or are you going to have some tax favorability to the investment? And then also diversification, which is if you specialize in some sort of niche, there are all sorts of external factors, whether it's regulatory risk, whether it's economic risk, whether it's interest rate risk, there's things that are outside of your control that are really impossible to prepare for. So having diversification across asset classes will help so that as these you know economic wins take place, that one type of investment, because it's not correlated with another, balances balances out. So those are his four, I would say, primary principles to investment. So how do you interpret that? And how have you used that kind of those principles, those ideas to manage your own investment decisions? Yeah, great question. So no one likes losing money. With that being said, Keith Cunningham calls it a dumb tax. It's like, don't make that dumb tax again. So there's a lot of, we'll pick hard money during the pre-correction. There was a lot of real estate deals that were on new construction, land development. I never let... I've actually... Knock on your table. I've only shorted one mortgage at a 10% haircut since 2006. So I've never had a foreclosure. So that I have a lot of confidence. Now, someone could say, well, that doesn't mean you're risking enough. No, that means I'm really underwriting the person, the deal, and, and making sure the investors I work with are in a good spot, right? With that, I also ne- didn't do any spec homes during the crash. So some of my friends made chunks, like $100,000 chunks. And I made my little ten, fifteen thousand dollars chunks doing my little flips, but I think singles and doubles. Yeah, see, I'm single guy. Maybe a double. Maybe you're stretching out that double every once in a while. So don't lose money. The asymmetrical risk versus return. I think that's a really interesting concept, which was new to me until I read Money Mastering the Game, and then also Unshakable, and went to Wealth Mastery. Now this Financial Summit. But here's how it works. You can buy real estate with less capital, borrowing OPM, other people's money. So that's totally me. That's how I've bought most of my properties. So then as I buy seller financing, and as I've thought about this, well, for $20,000 out of my pocket, I might be buying someone's house for $200,000, which is only 10% down. Got it. And now that property is worth like three fifty, dollars and now it's paid down to one sixty, dollars and that cash on cash returns. Pretty good. Really good, right? So I think... Understanding how to do that correctly, I know how to do that with real estate. I'm not very familiar with how to do that in other businesses. Tax efficiency, yeah, man. I don't love writing big checks to the IRS. I'm all about what can I do to reduce my tax liability, and then also in the future. So using Roth IRAs, self-directed 401ks, both in the market and then also in real estate investing. And you're super familiar with different insurance policies that help you with that type of coverage or also benefits. But I think tax efficiency, I'm more concerned right now to pivot and make little modifications as I grow my portfolio versus if I didn't think about that four years ago, it'd just keep rolling, rolling. And then I'd be like, oh man, this I have a good tax burden. And then diversifying, we learned something from Ray Dalio 
I think we're supposed to have 15 uncorrelated investments. Holy cow. That's a lot. I couldn't even. You can exercise to try to. Yeah, I did an exercise for my real estate consulting clients last Wednesday. It was really challenging for me to write out 15, but I did it on the teaching and I was like, it was way easier for me to figure out 15 ways to buy houses. So, (laughs) but it's helped me recalibrate. So what I'm doing with that is reviewing more diversification in the stock market. I am going to buy some gold, even if it's 1% of my portfolio or half a percent. I'm also focusing on some different insurance policies to complement with what I already have. So it just gives me some good recalibration with my long-term plans. And that's where I look at diversification. You become an expert in this specific niche. And I would say it's hard once you've done so much there and even have gone through tough times to diversify outside of it because there's always that weight of opportunity costs. Sure. So how do you how do you characterize that kind of dynamic? Great question. So one thing I'm doing now is I decided last year cuz winter is coming to liquidate 10% of my portfolio. I'll call them my D class properties, right? Like my two bedroom, one bath, 1920s houses that are just old. But they are good what I bought. So everything that I own that's newer than 1950 or newer, to at least a three bedroom, two bath with a garage, I'm going to keep for this next year. If it's uh, older than 1950, three bedroom, one bath, no covered parking, no garage, I'm liquidating. Hmm. Because we're at a peak of the market and, and it might go up in a year again and it might go up in another year, but I might as well liquidate, take some money off the top of the table. We yeah. learned that a lot. Half of it, I'm going to use my cash. I'll lend hard money. Because I view hard money lending as like having money in the bank. I can sell a note very easily for face value within a week to a lot of different people. And then the other part of the money is I'll do 1031 exchanges and buy some expensive multi-units. But if I take my gross revenue, like let's say I'm grossing $1,500 a month in rent right now, and I can sell the property and take $150,000 and buy a $500,000 fourplex and my gross rent is $4,000, my cash flow is going to increase. So that's going to put me in a better financial position. Then I'll let that $500,000 fourplex slowly appreciate at 3% for 10 years and let the principal pay down. And then I'll keep growing my portfolio. Well, you know how to underwrite, right? You know how to to look for those opportunities and you have enough of a, uh, a portfolio where you can find different opportunities in there to become more efficient with certain properties. And I know you're going to, to learn about multifamily too, which is, you know, I would say other other opportunities because the demographic right. uh, demographic shifts, especially here in, in Utah. Right. But the idea of taking something that's inefficient and making it more efficient. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's end let's end with uh some of the stuff you've experienced over the last couple of years with uh with Tony Robbins organization around around legacy and you know how that has impacted the perspective you have with your your money, your investments, your your business. But let's just start with you know what you're excited about right now in life. Yeah. So like this last year, I've got last year I went to eight events, which is a lot. And I've seen you like hell. We like hung out every other weekend mm-hmm. or every other month. Like <laughs> I, I think I've seen you more than a lot of my good friends that live in Utah. Right. <laughs> I'm really excited. Like being more self aware, how much more we can do in life. Like not just financially, but just mentally, socially, engagements with other people being more impactful. Like 
thanks for letting me participate in this podcast. I know that if I help one person, it's totally worth it, right? What's really cool though is I can keep this and share this with my kids in the future. And they'll be like, oh, dad was saying this when we were kids. Because a lot of my friends are like, you say the same thing over and over. I'm like, well, it means it works, right? So Tony Robbins has helped me think more of just being more well-rounded or balanced. He gives an example of the wheel of life. Do you remember that exercise? Oh, yeah. yeah. So like most of the things I'm eight and nines and one thing I'm like a six. And here's the cool thing. That gives me some metrics to measure up and improve. So number one is self-awareness. Number two is how much our psychology makes a difference in life. Like huge. And influencing our significant other, our kids, our family, our amazing team that we work with, clients that we serve, the community. That's been really impactful of like, you know, make your move, change your state, jump on a rebounder. It literally (laughs) makes a difference of like how we choose to do things. So have you redefined your understanding of wealth or has it been redefined? Yeah. Wealth. So I would say I was more monetarily motivated. I'm definitely more lifestyle motivated. So lifestyle not necessarily means, hey, I'm getting, I can't get the steak. I'm getting the chicken. Like during the market crash. Mm -hmm. It's just being able to choose, right? So like I was meeting with my controller and had a phone call this today about last year's finances of like where everything's at. So as we're looking at like, okay, what do we need to decrease? It's always good to trim the fat and reevaluate. So as we're reviewing what to trim, and then I was like, okay, here's the opposite. How much more do I need to earn to keep doing with what we're doing, right? And they're like, that's a really good question. We should come up with a number to go towards because I know that I get more inspired by going towards that number. And then as we cut the fat from other things, then we can be in a really good spot too with that. So where before I would have just like, let's cut, let's cut, let's cut. So it's been more like, hey, what what do we really want? And then Tony teaches RPM. What do you want? Why do you want it? And then like three, three action items. That's been really reinforcing. And it's it's so simple. At the same time, most people completely miss identifying the results clearly first and they if that's if it's not done then going to the solution going to the how it's risky right and that's where i look at one of the exercises he does when he has us all write down the number we think it takes to be you know financially free right and everybody massively overshoots right. what it actually is yep. because of a failure to be crystal clear with the results that you're after yep and understanding you know not just the results but the purpose the why of those results yep and a big thing for him is if you've identified this he doesn't use asymmetric risk reward just with with money but he does it with what he wants out of life Right, which is here's the results I want. Now, how can I get it for the least for the least yeah. amount? Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. And that and I and I love that because ultimately in the end, we don't want money. We want the experiences, the lifestyles yep. you put it, that bring us the most satisfaction, joy, and then ultimately benefiting the lives of others, right? Yep. Getting in that contribution mode. Right. And money is essentially just a vehicle to make that type of a difference, both in yourself and both in others. Yeah. And that's why I think is is huge because if you don't recognize that going into any type of investment strategy, your emotions are going to overrule sometimes unless uh, you're able to really just appreci- appreciate and be grateful for what exists, what exists now. 
And if things happen, great. If they don't, then you still have and, and retain that state, right? Right. And usually that's what I would say brings what results we really want closer to us, right? As opposed to, you know, sometimes when we're not satisfied, ungrateful, prevents those things from being in our life. Does that right. make sense? Yep. It's interesting how we worked together 15 to 16 years ago. And at the time we were like 26-ish, ish, give or take, right? <laughs> Just young, up and coming. You were married? Yeah. So I got married in 2007. Mm-hmm. I remember going to... Did you go to the five-point agent class that Garrett White taught? Yeah. So the cool thing, he's very made a lot a big impression on my life. I met him 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. He's my college roommate. So it's cool to see how different people show up in our lives at different times. And then it could be years later. But he took, he encouraged me to take a wake up warrior class, which I really loved to help, help spur my reading. Actually, like reading Loving What Is and a bunch of other books. And then he introduced me to strategic coach. So I went like, and it's kind of platform stacked in a positive way. And then as we had Peter, was it Peter Diamandis? He's speaking at Tony's event, but he's also a strategic coach student. And he's given tons of credit to Dan Sullivan. The cool thing is all of this is available to anyone who chooses to take the time to study. Because three years ago, I would never think I was going to Tony Robbins event, running around at the Sun Valley. But today, when I woke up, saw the market, I'm like, holy cow. I actually knew or was aware of what this could impact the economy. And I'm like, that was really worth the money because I am not freaking out. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. I explained it. So everyone that's listening to these podcasts, like here's my suggestion. And Patrick knows this. I always wear shirts. I have my swag on the back. But if you take three things you learned from the podcast, and as you implement those three things and give yourself a date, and I've learned this from Garrett White, Dan Sullivan, Tony Robbins, and probably my preschool advisor when I was a kid, <laughs> whoever. But when you write out action items and have outcome driven, you can do so much in your life. And I think that those who take the time to listen to this, it's cool to listen, but actually take the time and people say massive action, but just do something, right? Like you'll get farther along by doing something versus being entertained because we have amazing voices. What would you say are the primary reasons that in that prevent people from taking action? The lack of confidence in themselves. Like I was born, like I've been a pretty confident person just to go do stuff. And I think what I really have gotten from Tony is, and even Tom Hopkins, like Tom Hopkins uh, in 2006 says, I never see failure as failure, but only as a practice, an opportunity to practice my technique and perfect my performance for my perfect, my performance. He has these little incantations or sayings that are ingrained in me still. So I think that as we're more confident in life and then we have at-bats, the more at-bats we have and build that confidence, then we can take on a lot more things. I love how Tony puts it where we have you know a 10,000-year-old brain that is still trying to protect us right. from you know the saber-toothed tiger. Right. And that that fear is there, but it's a, an irrational fear. And if you know that, and when that fear comes up, because people associate putting down something on paper, saying, this is what I want, this is what I, I want to achieve, and then not achieving it. 
a huge fear of failure and the fact that they're not enough, right? right? Or the yeah. belief that they're not enough, maybe not the fact. And, and that prevents them from taking any action or putting any result down on right. paper. But if you really look at those instincts that are inside of us that are trying to protect us, that's that feeling. But we don't have the necessity to, necessity to be protected like that anymore. Right. So really, when it comes down to any, any type of fear, like, man, we live in a very uh, privileged country in a very privileged you know, time in history right. where fear should not be there yet. It's always going to be there. Right. But knowing that up front and recognizing that, wow, here are the results I want. And this is the massive action or here's why I want it. And then here's the massive action that I'm going to take to get it. Even if you don't get it, the massive action teaches you and brings you closer to what it is you really want. Oh, for and sure. If you understand that, then, and again, it's one of those things, it's, it's programmed like in our, our DNA and it takes a lot of repetition, as right. you said. It takes trying, 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 and just being tenacious and not, uh, not stopping. Similar to the Co- Kobe as we started the conversation with that. It's like he missed those free throws as a rookie. Yeah. He didn't quit. Yeah, he's chucking them up. Didn't quit. Yeah. It made him work harder yeah. and harder and harder. And yeah. that's the principle of failure. I think the, big, the bigger you can fail, the more likely, the bigger your success. Right. And at the end of the day, how we will be remembered. That's what it matters. That's what yeah, I think we're all compelled to make a difference yeah. in somebody else's life. And yeah. once that bridge, once you cross that, cross that line, it life takes on a, a, a new meaning. I agree. And I believe that, you know, as you have kids, as you, you know, have relationships and you have those that uh, you make an impact on, like it, it provides you with a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment that you just want to continue doing it, but it's identifying it first. It's most important. Right. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, this has been a good conversation. Yeah. Thank you. I don't even feel like uh, it's natural. Yeah. We should just be at the beach. <laughs> I was, it's cold today. I'm, yeah, it is cold. Today. Uh, so you referenced something about the stock market crash. So today, you know, this is not going to go live when we're recording this, but the uh, stock market's down because of the coronavirus. But we were, I would say one of the overriding themes of the financial summit this year up in Sun Valley was the impact that that's going to have yeah. because of how significant a role China plays in, you know, in the supply chain side of things and how just a slight disruption is going to have a ripple effect that right. goes into so many different industries, countries, and economies. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yes, it's true. But we get to watch. And we not, get to play and participate. Absolutely. With a little more confidence than other people. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been, uh, this has been awesome. I, I, I really enjoy it. Matt and I have some awesome conversations at, at dinner and, and uh, different meals that we have. But I'm grateful for you, man. I'm yeah, grateful for you. how you've uh, stepped up and you post a lot of stuff online and, and are, are trying to continually inspire people to be better. Yeah. So do you want to maybe mention a few ways in which the audience can follow you or oh, listen you to you or learn more from you? Yeah. So I'm a big Facebook guy because I think I'm over 40. <laughs> not on, I'm not on Instagram as much. I swear there's like this demographic. You're like, there totally you're, is. You're here, you're on Facebook, if you're younger, you're on Instagram, yeah. and then there's other stuff. So Matt Atkinson, my real estate consulting company is called MJA Real Consulting. I love helping people with real estate investing. I'm the president of the Utah Valley Real Estate Investors Association. We have meetings every month for those that are in Utah. It's definitely worth going to in Utah County to go and learn. And then if you um, need residential financing in Utah, I work at Intercap Lending. You can My email is matkinson at intercaplending.com. That's M Atkinson, A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N 
at intercaplending.com. And if you put in the subject line, I listen to Patrick's podcast and he's really good looking. I'll probably talk to you a little extra. But you got to put in the subject line, he's really good looking for you to get some extra time. <laughs> well, all the all that contact information and uh, Matt's email address will be in the show notes. So go ahead over to thewellstandard.com and click on the most recent episode. All right, everyone. Thanks for uh, for tuning in. Matt, thank you for your time. I appreciate welcome. it, thank buddy. Thank you. We'll have to have you on again. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,